Luke 4, 16 through 21, it says this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the, of, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set a liberty to those, uh, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm Jeremy, one of the leaders uh, at our church here. And um, it's great that you could join us at this part of our series. We are, we're 11 out of 14 weeks through our series on the Word of God. And we are finally making our way down this end of the timeline. And we have finally made it to Jesus. After 10 weeks of making our way there, that's where we're heading today. But the biggest thing that we're taking away from this story, particularly as we come to the conclusion of it, is this, that God is the author of history, and he has written the story, and the question is, is this the story that you are living your life by? Because the truth is, there is not a single person in this room, or in this city, or in this world, who does not have a story that they believe about what life is about, and about their place in it. It is impossible for us to get around the idea of understanding who we are, and how we should act, in, in, in terms of a story, even when it comes to small things. I remember a while ago, I was walking, I was walking down the street towards sort of uh, a car park where my car was, and as I was walking down the street, it was, not, it was sort of getting dark, but it wasn't exactly night time yet, so it was kind of around you know, 6 o'clock or something, the sun was sort of going down. And as I was walking along the footpath, I noticed that the woman in front of me kind of looked over her shoulder and sort of picked up her pace a little bit. And she kind of kept walking, and so didn't take too much notice of it, kept walking. And then she looked back again, and then moved quicker, and then looked back again, and started to sort of, I don't know what you call it, canter. What's in between a run and a walk? Horses have an in-between, why don't we? Uh, but sort of started to, to move a little bit quicker. And I started to think, like what, is it, like, what is it about me that's giving off a threatening sort of mode? Do I have a hoodie on? Or did I accidentally carry a large knife? Or like, I mean, I've been doing a few push-ups and whatnot, so maybe, you know guilty. Maybe that makes me look a bit threatening. I understand that. But as, as I was running, I was like, what is that? And I started to think maybe I should cross the street or something like that. And then, and then it dawned on me what was happening. A large bus started to slow up kind of as it pulled alongside. I realized she was worried about missing. She hadn't noticed me at all. She was worried about missing the bus. And so all of a sudden I felt an extreme sense of relief about what was going on. But it is interesting that there were two competing stories going on. And one was true and one wasn't, but it certainly affected how I acted. The story that was running through my mind was, a woman at night is worried about a man trailing behind her, and I was that man. And so because of that, I started to second-guess myself and all this kind of stuff. The real story was, she was just worried about missing the bus and was trying to get to the bus stop in time. But even when it comes to small scenarios like that, when we try and understand the behavior of people around us, we understand it in terms of stories. We try and think, what's a story that would explain what's going on? The one that came to mind for me was the wrong one. That's true of small situations, but it's also true of bigger ones. 
When it comes to your entire life story, you understand where you fit in this world according to a story. The only question is, is it in sync with reality or isn't it? Is it the real story? Is it the actual story of history? Are you living in light of the true story or is it a made up one? Whether you are here and you do not believe that there's a God and so life has a meaning to it that that means that you will find purpose and meaning and hope and joy within this life now before you pass away, whether it's that you believe that there is a God or many gods that need pleasing or appeasing in order to make your way to them, or whether you believe the story of the gospel, whatever it is, it will impact the decisions that you make. It will impact the way that you relate to other people. It will impact where you think joy and meaning and, and hope is found in this life. And as we get to this part of this story, we're going to see that the story that God says is true of the world is this. That he has sent his Messiah, Jesus, to bring good news and that this good news needs to be proclaimed to all the nations. That's where we fit in his story and we're going to see what it means to be a part of that story as we track through a passage in Isaiah and the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray that God would reveal to our hearts and minds his truth today. Father, we praise you that you are the author of history and that you are the one who brings true and lasting good news. And Father, we pray that you'd open the eyes of our heart to see the good news of Jesus, that in him is forgiveness of sins and hope and joy and life everlasting. And Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. So let's pick up where we kind of left off with the story. If you've been with us a few weeks or if this is your first week, it doesn't matter. You should be able to track along with it. But basically, as we've moved along the story from God creating the world to drawing a people to himself, where we landed around here was that Israel, a group of people that God had called together to be his family, had rebelled against him again and again and again. And they go from anarchy, complete anarchy. Israel is in disarray. It is the worst of worst places to be on the earth. And then they go from that to monarchy. And the first king seems to be going all right. His name is Saul, but then he goes off the tracks. And then David comes along, and he seems to be doing even better, but then he crashes even worse. And then Solomon comes along, and he seems to be doing even better, and then he crashes even worse. And then eventually his son, Rehoboam, decides to be a big chief, and he gets out there and he tells the people of Israel that he's going to tax them twice as much as his father did, and it splits the whole country. And at that point, 10 tribes or states out of 12 move up north and start to call themselves Israel. That's them on the map there. And the bottom, the bottom two are from then on called Judah. But in the north, things don't go well. Jeroboam is the first king, and he sins greatly by creating a golden calf and saying, this is a god, bow down to this and worship. And things never get any better up the north. In fact, tracking along, it goes from bad to worse to worse, and it keeps going, just as if you skip through the next through. And then eventually, in 722, after being warned and warned and warned by the prophets that God sends them, and he sends them prophet after prophet, and they either reject them or kill them, eventually, God says, that's it. And Assyria comes through from the north and wipes out Israel, and they are no more ever again. They're completely wiped out. Their wickedness was greater than the nations even around them. But things in the south kind of flip and flop. Sometimes there are some bad kings, then occasionally next you get some good kings, or going back a little bit, you get some good and some bad ones, and then eventually, go one back, there you go, yeah, and then eventually they end up in the exact same place as the north, and in 597, this is when we'll go to the next one, 
Babylon, the greatest empire at their time, comes through and takes the area of Judea, which is of Judah, which is around the capital Jerusalem, and completely destroy the territory. But Jerusalem itself stays intact. And there's a king in charge there called Jehoiakim. And when he dies, he puts his son in charge called Jehoiakim because he just panicked on the spot and couldn't think of a name. He's like, Jehoiakim. Isn't that your name? No, no, I said Jehoiakim. Right? And so his son becomes a king at 18 years old. What could possibly go wrong? Anyway, he lasts about three months when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, decides this time that he's, he's going to appoint Zedekiah, so Jehoiakim's uncle, to be king. And eventually, Zedekiah decides that he's going to gamble against the, the great nation of Babylon and make an alliance with Egypt, and he rebels against them and stops paying taxes. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar comes through and completely wipes out Jerusalem. On the next slide, I'll just show you here. First, there was the exile in 597, and then after this, in 586, they are completely wiped out. At this point, they destroy the city walls. The temple is burned to the ground. There is absolutely nothing left. Everyone who is a part of Israel is taken out of Israel and taken to the capital in Babylon. This is, there is nothing left. It doesn't get any worse for Israel. There is nothing in the north, nothing in the south. It is completely wiped out. There is no remnant of this group of people that were meant to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. There is nothing. And it doesn't get any lower than this point. After having rejected God, rebelled against him, done awful things to one another for hundreds and hundreds of years, it is finally the end. But even at this point, God does not abandon his people. At this point, while they're in exile, while they're captives, while they've been taken away to a foreign city, when they think they're at the absolute rock bottom, God sends them this promise. Look at what it says. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God says he's going to send this anointed one, the Messiah. The word Messiah literally means anointed one. And it comes from when David became king, the prophet Samuel put oil on his head and anointed him and said, look, this is the king that God has chosen. It means the chosen one, the one that God is going to use to save his people, the Messiah. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Israel are in exile. They are poor. They are captives. Some are in prison and they're bound. And God says, I'm going to send a Messiah who's going to bring good news to you. Things seem as bad as they can get. You've had bad news for only the last few years, but I'm going to send a Messiah who will bring good news. And the next thing that happens in Israel's history is a little bit unexpected. The Persians come through and become the greatest empire in the world. They, they overtake the Babylonians. And a guy called Cyrus the Great... Uh, establishes this kingdom, and he actually shows favor to the Jewish people who are in exile. He actually, if you ever look at the next one, sends home the first wave of returnees in 538, and he sends them with money to rebuild the city. And so people start to think, maybe this is it. Even though it's a foreign king, maybe this is the Messiah that God has promised, the anointed one. He's setting the captives free. He's letting us go home. This is good news to the poor. Maybe this is the Messiah. And so they go back to the city 
and they lay the foundations for the temple. They're going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But when they do, look what happens. In the book of Ezra, we read this. It says, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish from the sound of the joyful shout, from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. Did you catch what's happening? Some people there were born in Babylon, in exile. They had never known what life was like in Israel. And when they see the temple foundations being laid, they're like, this is amazing. God is bringing everything together. It's finally happening. He's going to restore Israel. But anyone who was there who lived through the exile and has come back as a returnee is completely destroyed. When the temple foundations are laid, it's, it's nowhere near what it used to be. They look at it and they're like, this, isn't a, this is an Audi version of a temple, right? This, isn't, this is Cocoa Puffs, not Cocoa Pops. And there's this sound of weeping. And there's this great lament because it's this huge disappointment. They're thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is, the, the, is God restoring Israel. And when they see it, they're like, I see what's happening. It's not going to be like it was. They're not a free state. They're a vassal state of a greater empire. They're not going to have a king. They've got a tiny temple that's a shadow of the previous one. It's not going to be the same. They're not being returned. This is not the good news that was promised in Isaiah. The Messiah hasn't come. And more than that, as we follow the story, we see a second wave come through with Ezra. In the book of Ezra, he brings another wave of returnees back. And then in 432, the last wave kind of comes back. Pretty much everyone who is in exile is back now, except a few others like Esther, if you read in the book of Esther. But at the book of Nehemiah, basically the Old Testament story finishes. Nehemiah comes back with money from the Persian king and has money to, to restore the walls of the city. But again, it's nothing like it was before. And more than that, they're back to their old ways. Sin has taken hold again, and Israel are doing the very things that pushed them into exile in the first place. And the, the end of the Old Testament finishes with the last prophet, Malachi, writing these words. These are the very last words of the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last words of the Old Testament are saying, look, before the great day comes, I will send you the prophet Elijah. He was probably the most famous prophet in the Old Testament. And God is saying, I'm going to send Elijah to you. He's going to prepare the way. But after this, from then on, we get 400 years of complete silence. God doesn't send any prophets. No judges, no kings. Empires turn over. The Persians are overtaken by the Greeks. The Greeks kind of split into four, and then they're overtaken by the Romans, and still no word from God. 400 years of nothing after that promise from Malachi. And then in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, sentence 1, we read this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... 
Pontius Pilate being governor over Judah, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And the reason this is so significant is that phrase, the word of God came to, is a phrase that was used of the prophets. They haven't heard from God in 400 years. Suddenly, there is a prophet. And it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so as this happens, people start to think, maybe this is it. Maybe the, the day of the Lord is coming. Maybe the Messiah is coming. Maybe the Messiah is here. And so in Luke 3.15, we read this. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now the reason we have Christ here, Christ is the same word for Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. Remember in that 400 years, the whole region was taken over. The whole world became Greek. So everything is still written in Greek. And so here they're using Christ instead of Messiah. But they're wondering whether John might be the Christ. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. So John says, it's not me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who's coming. I'm just the one who's preparing the way. He's the one who is like the promise in Malachi, the the Elijah, the prophet who is coming along to prepare the way before Jesus. And he was like Elijah in many ways. And he is just there to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now you think, why do that? Why kind of pull a prank on Israel and send them someone who they think is going to be the Messiah only to turn out that it's not? Well, the reason is royalty never show up unannounced. I mean, we of all cities should know that right now, shouldn't we? When the royals, um, uh, Harry and Meghan, I said William, I went to say William and Kate this morning. Shocking, I know. But uh, when, when Harry and Meghan were on the way, I mean, we knew about it from a long way out, right? People in Dubbo were pleading for them to get out there from like months and months out. It was no, no one was surprised when they showed up. No one was caught off guard. Well, maybe look, a few people would have been. But generally, there's a lot of preparation when royalty come to town. When the king, the Messiah, is about to show up, God's not just going to send him through unannounced. He sends through John to prepare the way, to preach the good news. Notice he was saying, forgiveness of sins is coming. There is good news coming. Be ready. And so in Luke 4, 1 to 2, we read this about Jesus. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, remember the the Lord's anointed was to be full with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So we have this Jesus filled with the Spirit who, unlike Israel in the desert, does not sin. The Lord's Spirit is upon him. And in Luke four sixteen to 21, Jesus announces this. Look what it says. It says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. So that's the assembly of Jewish people. They'd come together to read from God's word. They were gathering in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. Everybody is watching him at this point. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, can you imagine that moment? 400 years, these people have been waiting for this Messiah. And Jesus starts performing miracles. At the beginning of his ministry, people are wondering, who is this guy? He, he unrolls a scroll, reads exactly from Isaiah 61, and, and rolls it up and says, today, that's been fulfilled in your hearing. What would you think would be the reaction? Surely it would be jubilation. Surely people would be like, it's finally happened. But within moments, the people are divided. Jesus says, it's me, I'm the Messiah, the one who has come to proclaim good news, to set the captives free. And immediately, people just aren't sure what to do with it. And he ends up getting run out of his own town. Jesus is the misunderstood Messiah. He comes proclaiming good news, but it wasn't the good news that they were expecting. He comes proclaiming forgiveness of sins. Remember, that was what John was preaching. That's what we'll hear at the end of the Gospel of Luke is to be proclaimed in all the earth. He comes preaching good news and yet it's not the good news that people were hoping for. So you remember where this prophecy was first told to Israel? Where were they? They were in exile. They were physically captives. They were physically poor. They were physically set aside. And so they assumed that when this prophecy came true that what God was going to do was restore Israel to its former glory. He would get rid of the occupying Romans. He would use all that power that he had to destroy the Romans and to set up Israel as a proper nation state again. But instead, he comes proclaiming, repent, believe, and you'll find forgiveness for sin. It's good news, but it's not the good news they wanted. Isn't it the case that some gifts are easy to receive and others not so much. There are some gifts that you, if, if they're ones that you actually want, there's, it's uncomplicated, the process of receiving them. You receive them with gratitude. But let's imagine someone gave you a book like How to Win Friends and Influence People, or, um, or How to Manage an Angry or Irritable Temperament. If someone gave you a book like that, you'd be like, Thanks. But also, do you have something you want to talk to me about? If someone gives you a gift like that, it's a, it's a gift with a kind of a, a, you know, a, a little bit of a stab in the back. I think the message that Jesus is giving, the good news that he gives to them, is kind of twofold. He comes to the people saying, I've come to bring you good news, that your sins can be forgiven. And they're a little bit like, well, we're not that sinful, that's not what we really need. It's not a gift that they're happy for. In fact, they say, you know what, that's, that's cool. You could, you could even keep that one. Why don't you use all that power that you have to kind of establish us back as a great nation again? Why don't you do that? That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus becomes the misunderstood Messiah. And he is so misunderstood that they don't just dislike him, that they gather together and conspire to kill him. 
But worse than that, they don't want to just kill him in any old way. When the Jewish authorities gather to kill Jesus, they could have done it quietly. They could have done it any which way they, they proposed to. Jesus does not resist them. But what do they do? They take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and ask for him to be executed by crucifixion. Now that is a lot of effort to go to. Because at any point, given that there's no charge that, they can, that can be brought against him under Roman law, at any point they could have been dismissed. So it was a risky move by them. Why did the Jewish authorities go to such lengths to have Jesus crucified? Because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God has chosen, God's chosen instrument to save his people. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's written that anyone who dies on a tree is cursed by God. And they knew this piece of scripture, and they knew that the one way to prove that he was not the Messiah was to have him hung up on a tree, crucified on a pale of wood, to demonstrate that not only was he not chosen by God, but he was cursed by God. And so Jesus dies in the most agonizing way possible, in the most humiliating way possible, and uses none of his power to resist it, but we are told goes like a sheep to the slaughter. And then we read this in Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says what these men intended for wickedness, God intended for good. They wanted to demonstrate that he was not the Messiah by having him hanged on a tree and instead it only proves that he really was the Messiah. That Jesus was cursed in our place. That the death that we should have died for our sin, he dies for us. Christ is treated as a sinner and we get treated as though we had lived righteously for all who believe in Jesus. This was the plan all along. This is what he says. He says so that the promises of Abraham might be fulfilled. So the promises that were made all the way back here come true here because Jesus dies on a cross. This was God's plan from the beginning that his Messiah would bring the good news of forgiveness by dying in our place for our sin. That he would deal with the issue that got Israel into trouble in the first place. God could have restored them over and over again a thousand times. It wouldn't have mattered. Over all this history, what happened again and again is sin ruined things and ruined things and ruined things. And Jesus finally comes and deals with it once for all, being hung on a tree, cursed for our sin. And all this so that forgiveness for sins might be proclaimed in all the earth. Years ago, I read a book by a guy called Bishop Desmond Tutu. He was a bishop in South Africa and who lived through the transition from apartheid to democracy. And his uh, account of it and recollection of it was that in many ways it was a, a miraculously peaceful transition. Compared to the kind of turmoil that other countries have gone through in, in having a change of leadership this radical, he said it was a, a reasonably, even remarkably peaceful transition. 
And he, he credits it to one decision that the government made when they were transitioning. They made the radical decision to declare an amnesty for anyone who had committed any crime so long as they made a full and public confession and it was recorded. So what would happen was they would take people through and so long as their account was verifiably true, that they didn't leave out any details, they laid out everything that had happened and admitted full guilt and responsibility, as long as they did that, they would be pardoned completely. That was incredibly radical because for some they were like, what we really need is to hunt these people down and make sure that they pay for it. And yet they took this radical step to say anyone who, who, who actually confesses to it will not be charged, will actually get a full and complete pardon. And this is what Tutu says about, about this decision. He said, that is a very high price to ask the victims to pay. That happens to have been the price those who negotiated our relatively peaceful transition from repression to democracy believed the nation had to ask its victims. Our freedom has been bought at a very great price. Forgiveness comes at a price. And it comes at the price of those who have been offended or mistreated. How great was the forgiveness that was offered that there might be a peaceful transition from repression to democracy in South Africa. And yet how much greater was the forgiveness of God who overlooked the sin of all of history to pour out his wrath, his righteous anger against sin upon his son that we might be set free. The good news of the Messiah doesn't come cheaply. The good news is for forgiveness of sins and it came at the cost of the blood of God's only son. That God opened the storehouses of heaven and poured out what was most precious, the blood of his son Jesus, that we might be set free. Forgiveness comes at a price, good news comes at a price and it's at the price of the Messiah. And so to demonstrate that Jesus was not in fact a sinner cursed by God, He rises from the dead and appears to hundreds of witnesses. And after all of that, he gathers his disciples together at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And in chapter 24, we read this. When he's gathered just his disciples together, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is where the whole Bible has been heading. Jesus opens the Bible in front of them and says, look, this whole story has been pointing to me and this moment. I've taken away sin. It's completely dealt with. We don't need to do temple sacrifices anymore. They were just a reminder that sin hadn't been dealt with. Now it's done. The debt is paid. Forgiveness is won and paid in full. Now go to the nations, starting from here, go as far and wide as you can and tell everyone that they can find forgiveness for their sin in Jesus. And this is incredible. And this is the thing that sets apart the message of Jesus from every other major religion. The the fact that the message of Jesus is essentially good news rather than good advice is what sets it apart. Every other religion says, this is what you must do in order to connect with God. Christianity says, this is what God has already done so that you might have a relationship with him. 
It's in the past. Jesus has already died and risen from the dead to demonstrate that he was the Messiah, to demonstrate that your sin can be forgiven. And the question really is, have you responded? The Bible holds that this is the true story of history. That right now we're in the phase of history where this message of Jesus is going out to the ends of the earth. And the question for you is whether or not you have responded. It's a message that demands a response. This is a free offer of forgiveness. And it's complete and full forgiveness. It's not partial. God doesn't forgive a few of your sins, but then keep a few of them to hang over your head for later. He's not like the difficult partner who kind of forgives, but uses that as a bargaining chip later on. It is full and complete forgiveness, set free forever to have full life with him. If you have not responded to this, what's stopping you responding to it now? This is the whole message of the Bible. But if you're someone who has responded to this, is this the story that you live in light of? That actually the whole of history came to a head in Jesus and now the whole point, the reason that he hasn't returned is that the gospel is going out to the nations and you are a part of that story. Is that what affects and shapes your life? Is that the driving narrative of your life? Oftentimes, I feel like the church generally acts in a diff- in according to a different narrative. I don't know if you've seen... Is it, can I just get a quick show of hands as to who's seen Saving Private Ryan? All right. How many of you knew that Vin Diesel was in Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, a few of you. That, I found that out today and that absolutely blew my mind. <laughs> but anyway, in, uh, in Saving Private Ryan, there is, if you're not familiar with the story, there's a small group of troops who are sent out to save one particular man because he's the last son left in a family who's been bereaved of all other sons. And so they're sent on this special mission to, to sort of retrieve him and bring him home, um, to spare his mother you know, more grief. And so they're sent out to do this. And as they do it, it's obviously in the middle of the war. It's a perilous mission. And there's one really striking scene that if you've, if you've watched the movie, it probably stayed with you. There's a scene where, uh, where one private, Private Mellish, is in a, a one-to-one scuffle with a Nazi soldier. And it's incredibly intense, and it's drawn out, and it just keeps going. And outside the door, there's a corporal who's armed with a machine gun. And he's sitting there shaking, and he's too afraid to go in the room. He's too afraid to go in there and to save his friend's life. And in the audience, everyone is just stressed. You're all sitting there going, just get in there. What are you doing? You've got a, a weapon with you. Why Go and save your friend. What are you doing? Just sitting there cowering. And it's probably the most frustrating, I don't know how long it is. It feels like about half an hour, but it's probably about two or three minutes in the movie. Because you think, what are you doing? Is there any better metaphor for how the church in the West often acts? We're sitting there clutching the good news, the answer to life and death, worried to go out in the world and to tell people that there is forgiveness for sins that is on offer for free. Sitting there doing nothing while souls perish. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, Now is the time to proclaim this good to the nations, this good news to the nations. Take it as far and wide as you can. The people can find forgiveness from for sin no matter who they are or what they have done. And that is the part of history that we find ourselves in. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you have never tried to share the good news with someone, why not make this year the year? 
As Gav said before, we've got a series coming up called Introducing Jesus. Maybe it's only as far as just inviting someone to hear that good news proclaimed. That forgiveness for sins can be found in Jesus. But in our small groups and missional communities, we're going to be going through some material on how it is that you might share the good news of Jesus with people who look, many people have no interest in working, walking into a church building and yet need to hear the good news as well. And so we're going to be going through that as well. But whichever way it is, we are called to proclaim this good news, to take it as far and wide as we can. We had one aim over this series, to know the Word of God deeply, and now the call is to share the Word of God widely. That's what we're going to be doing over the rest of the year as this series wraps up and we move into the next. Why not pray and make every effort to share the good news? But in case of mischaracterized God here, I just want to share with you one last quote from A.W. Tozer. He says this, he says, Too many modern missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of an almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the unsaved, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of young people enter Christian service from no higher motive than to save God from the embarrassing situation his love got him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Such a God would not command the respect of intelligent men and women. He could only excite their pity. God started this story hundreds, thousands of years before any of us came into existence. And he'll bring it to conclusion long after we are gone. It will happen. It is irreversible. These are the unstoppable purposes of God. But our privilege as followers of Jesus is to be a part of this great story and to live in light of it. God is inviting us into this mission. He's not saying, please help me. I'm stuck. I'm jammed. I, I absolutely overpromised and underdelivered. Could you bail me out? Now, God is bringing this to conclusion. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The privilege and calling of the Christian is to be a part of proclaiming this good news to the nations. Let's pray that we would. Father God, we praise you that you are a good and everlasting God. That you forgive. That we have sinned against you and yet you have atoned. You sent Jesus to die in our place and now our sin is completely washed away. We are made new in Christ Jesus. Father, we praise you that you made a way back to you even when we had rejected you completely. And Father, we just pray that we would live in light of this and in light of the story that you have written, that the gospel is going out to the nations, that you are calling people to yourself from every tribe, nation, and tongue all over the globe, and that you call us to be a part of this great and mighty work that you are doing. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to do it, not for the glory of our name, but for yours. Amen. We're going to spend